This podcast is designed for you to discover more about who you are, to challenge your old adopted beliefs, and to expand your awareness of what's really possible. I'm Adam Esco, and this is The Unspoken Agreements. Hello and welcome back to the Unspoken Agreements podcast. I'm your host, Adam Esco. So before we introduce this week's episode's guests, I want to take a moment and introduce myself. For those of you who don't know me, I am a transformational coach and I get to work with just fantastic people, people in the workplace, people who are looking to build something new for themselves, either in the same career that they are and currently, or to get clarity on what it is that they're going to do next with their lives. You know, a lot of times people go through this uncertain period. They know something feels off. Um, They're frustrated with what's happening in their life, and they know they want something new, and they just need guidance and leadership on how to have that show up in their lives, and that's what I get to do for them, and I love every second of it, and I love to speak about it as well. So if this is something that speaks to you, I encourage you to reach out to me at adam at escocoaching.com. Also, I am very thankful to be working with Truth Work Media, who produced this podcast Podcast has taken over in 2020. Truthwork Media has been phenomenal to work with. They are terrific people. They are professionals. They work with small businesses like myself. They also work with large corporations, startups, the whole work. So if there's something that you want support around, I encourage you to reach out to Truthwork Media. Now, for this week's amazing guest, this is this is going to be so, so good, guys. I cannot wait to introduce and have you listen to Claire Lerner. Claire Lerner is a licensed clinical social worker and a child development specialist. I happened to stumble upon Claire at my kids' preschool. She gives these programs for the parents to help them navigate the chaos with what's going on at home. And I remember the first time I heard Claire, I literally could not, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a note taker, so I could not stop taking notes on what she had to say. And then what would happen is she offered these hour, hour and a half programs several times throughout the year. And I told my wife, I was like, we have to be at these things because they're so good. There's so much quality information in, in her sharing and her knowledge So, you know, Claire is the author of hundreds of resources for parents and professionals. Um, I definitely encourage you to check her out, her blog, her information at her website at learnerchilddevelopment.com. And you're going to notice during this whole episode, it's going to be, this is not fluff. This is just a depiction of what I'm talking about, where Claire is giving you how-tos, like what are the guiding principles for successful parenting and what does that look like? Like, give me the examples. You, If you're looking for examples on what to do versus what not to do, that's what you're going to find out here. So going right into it, hope you enjoy Claire Lerner. Okay, it is my great pleasure, and I am super, super excited to be talking to Claire Lerner today. Claire, thank you so much for taking the time to be in the podcast. This is this is really special. 
Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. So for those that don't know, Claire, I, the reason I got introduced to Claire is my two children go to Temple Rodef Shalom where Claire comes in from time to time to offer her services. She does uh, small group lectures. And so we get notified of these things. My wife told me about one of them about a year and a half, maybe two years ago. And I'll never forget it. We were sitting in this lecture, you gave a handout to all of us. And within five minutes, I was just totally blown away. I think the topic was about uh, maybe how to handle sibling behavior, what's normal, what's not normal. And really within the first five minutes, I was like, I've read maybe a couple books. I've I've read some blogs. I'm not saying I'm super aware of what's going on, but the value was hands down incredible and it continued to be that way. And I'll remember at that time, there was an, unex- I don't know if you remember this, there was an unexpected active shooter drill going on that no one really <laughs> knew about. And a couple of the mothers were climbing out the window <laughs> in order to try to get to their kids. And we were trying to kind of con- consult them that it's probably a drill and it's okay, but no one really knew what was going on. This wasn't announced. And it was just, I, I remember that because it was a time where you could see just the survival instincts and the passion that people had for their kids. It was kind of cool to see how much they cared. So do you remember when that was going on? Yes, I do. I rem- yes, I remember sort of trying to practice what I preach as much as possible, you know, sort of staying calm and not panicking and being aware that I was also sort of responsible for the group and, you know, processing my own anxiety about it, tuning into what the anxiety must feel like for parents having children in a school where you thought, you know, there might be pending danger uh, and really really trying to um, implement what I work so hard with parents to do, which is how to manage our own emotions so we can sort of respond to this challenge uh, effectively and not reactively. Um, so yes, I, I remember that. I think those moments that, you know, are, are so um, writ large in your life that in, induce such strong emotions are ones that are very hard to forget. Absolutely. You know, it's funny because you were really the leader that day and it was a great sign of that because we all decided to come back to the classroom after we got out of the classroom. Um, so we all led back uh, to, to that classroom to, to continue with the lecture. And I really told my wife after that point, I was like, anytime that there's something scheduled where Claire Lerner is giving a lecture, like I want to be there, we really need to be there. And I've gotten just incredible value and knowledge every single time. So, so let's jump right into it. Uh, you, a lot of things that I've heard you talk about is wrapped with this idea of how important the parents' mindset is to the success of raising your children. Did you always believe this to be so? And what did you notice that made you aware of this in the first place? So uh, the the way that evolved um, is that, that sort of that that major insight I had that um, how parents responded to their children was largely driven by you know, the lens through which they were seeing and experiencing these interactions with their kids was the result of working for many years with parents who um, had read many of 
really the awesome parenting and child rearing books that are out there that, you know, explain toddler development, you know, the insanity of it, how irrational young children can be, sort of putting that all into a developmental context so parents understand that, you know, children aren't trying to work their last nerve and that, you know, harsh and punitive reactions aren't effective or appropriate for young kids and they need and compassion and clear limits, you know, all of that has been written before. But what I was struck by was that no matter how much we focused on that and no matter the strategies I help parents come up with to respond in effective ways when their kids were, you know, exhibiting challenging behaviors, either, you know, drawing them to a power struggle or making unreasonable demands or refusing to cooperate or being oppositional or not going to bed at night, like the myriad of things that happen in the early years, I realized that the stumbling block was not sort of a lack of information. It was the ability to put that information into practice. And when I started to really think about that, um, was the same time that I decided to start doing home visits as part of my practice because, and this will all come together hopefully in a, in a logical, cohesive way. But so on the one hand, I've got this insight, right? That like parents have the information, they know the quote unquote sort of right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. Um, but they're having trouble enacting it, right? So I'm in my office, we're going over these strategies and they come back week after week reporting that it's just not working. And so I decided to start doing home visits at that time so that I could see in real life how these dynamics unfolded and to try and figure out what was the stumbling block, making it hard for these parents to enact what we had agreed um, on was a really strong, positive um, approach to helping their children. And that's where I have this major insight that what's happening is that in these very charged moments, parents are getting you know very triggered emotionally and they're functioning from a mindset that is making it almost impossible for them to act on the strategies we've discussed. So let me now um, bring that sort of to real life because I, I don't want it to sound too convoluted. So for example, here's what I saw over and over again, was that, you know, the parent would say no, let's say to, you know, more screen time. The child doing what young children will do is they pull out all the tools in their toolkit to try and get parents to change their mind. So maybe they have a tantrum or they call the parents, you know, horrible names and or they try and negotiate with them about why they should get more screen time. And in that moment when the child is starting to decompensate and, um, you know, pull at all these straws, the parent starts to feel like they're doing something wrong by denying this to their child. Um, they're either convinced of it because their child is incredibly clever and they're like, oh, three weeks ago when you, you, know, you said if I did X, Y, or Z that I could get another hour of screen time or completely decompensate and into a huge knockdown drag out tantrum. And all of those child reactions trigger in the parent this feeling that this is not a good state for my, this is harmful to my child. And so that makes it impossible for them to then actually follow through with the limit because no good parent is going to do something purposefully that they think is harmful to their child. And so 
then they, you know, their, their best laid plans fall apart and they end up either engaging in the long drawn out battle or negotiation, or they give in Mm -hmm. to end the tantrum because they think it's harmful to their child. One other example, um, that event is that parents go into parenting with, um, the notion that their job is to control their children or that they're even able to control their children. They're supposed to make them get potty trained and eat and sleep and cooperate. And the fact is that we have zero control over our children. They're human beings. We can't make them do anything. We can't make them eat, poop on the potty, not call us names when they're mad at us, be kind, not have a tantrum. We have zero control over any of that. Only they control how they behave and what they feel and what they do. Our control, the control parent is to control the situation, right? So for example, a child, um, you know, you say it's bedtime, it's time to get your body to sleep. You've done this awesome bedtime routine and now they keep coming out of the room, right? So telling a child, well, you need to stay in your room and, and then, you know, using all sorts of threats to try and get them to cooperate keeps the child in control of the situation because you're waiting for them to cooperate. As opposed to saying, here's the deal. If you come out of your room, no problem. I'll escort you back in one time and I'll put up this gate or this monkey lock or some barrier that helps the child stay in their room. So you can't make a child stay in their room, but you can erect a barrier or a boundary to make it so that they they, ha- they have to stay in their room. So that's another major faulty mindset is that I can control my child. If you think that that's, if that's what's guiding you, then you are going to have a tremendous amount of frustration because at the end of the day, you literally cannot make children do anything. So let me stop because I know that's a mouthful. I've got lots more examples if it would be helpful, but those are some of the mindsets I started to tune into when I watched these interactions and realized what's going on in this parent's head. What's their guiding principle that's that's guiding their behavior towards this child? And where the successes have been is in helping parents see that what's driving their reactions are often these faulty mindsets. And once we correct those, and instead of trying to control their child, they focus on setting clear limits and boundaries that they actually can control um, is, is where the positive changes started to happen. I, I, there was so much juice there. I, 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 there's just so much there to unpack. And I loved it because you know, as you're talking, I'm I'm thinking back to just last night or two nights ago or who, you know, all the time where I have a four and a half and a two and a half year old. And one of the children is, is my, my son, my two and a half year old keeps coming out of the room. And, you know, you've coached us on this a lot on what happens uh, on how you kind of clearly say what his options are and let him know what's what's normal and then how to use the monkey lock and as we've done that in the beginning you hear this screech like you said that the children are try whatever strategies they can and that that crying is just triggering all kinds of emotions inside of me it's like oh am i what is the thought whether it's consciously or subconsciously consciously is like 
is what I'm doing harmful or non-harmful? And where you've given us so much value is to give us those guiding principles as he's safe, you're, you're kind of outlining what's, uh, what are the options, he's having a choice on what is that. So it's, it's been extremely helpful to have that guidance from you to know uh, what's okay and what's, what's not okay. So I really appreciate, appreciate that. Yeah, I, I think like that, that's, you know, it's really knowing your triggers and, and being able to take a step back because it is really hard to hear kids, you know, protest and be upset. And one of the most important processes that I go through with families is to help them take that step back and see that tantrums and discomfort are not inherently harmful to young children. It's part of the growing process. You know, any that any of us have learned has come with some level of discomfort until we master it. So yes, if your child is used to, for example, being um, having a parent with them to lie down to go to sleep, then we have to expect that they're going to protest when the parent decides that they are going to implement a new structure and that they're going to do this awesome bedtime routine. And then they're going to say goodnight. And the expectation is their child is going to learn to fall asleep on their own. But the first night you do that, you have to expect that since all the child knows is having a warm adult body who they trust mm -hmm. next to them, they are going to go through a night or two of discomfort until they experience that they're okay and that they're safe and all is right with the world and that you're there every morning. It's living through the discomfort and the fear that leads to growth. And that's such an important mindset for parents to really incorporate because otherwise what we do is we get triggered by the emotion and we go in and rescue or we get into long prolonged battles, um, you know, trying to convince our children to agree with the rule, um, which, you know, really usually just prolongs this sort of very highly charged negative interaction. It's much better for kids to set the clear limit, understand that they are going to experience some discomfort um, in order to get to the place where they actually see that they're going to be fine. And that's true for so many things like dropping them off at preschool for the first time. Like if every kid who clung to their parents and, um, and, you know, cried at, at drop off, you know, if, if, all those parents said, oh, he can't handle preschool. We need to keep him at home. Think of what they would have missed. What happens is they go day after day and, you know, some kids after two days, some kids after two weeks see that preschool is an awesome place. They have an amazing time. They're learning and growing and they feel a sense of mastery that now be separated in a healthy way from their parents and function independently in a really positive way. So once parents absorb that, then they're much better able to set the really important limits kids need in order to thrive. Yeah. And I was just thinking as you were talking, one of the things that I was interested in asking you is why is it so hard for us parents to handle the chaos? And I think part of it that I was realizing as you were speaking was that like there's this mental conflict in our minds of 
what behavior we would experience from them that would either be okay or not okay or harmful or not harmful. And and I think really what you do is provide the framework of what's okay and what's safe. And that can release a lot of the chaos. Do you notice that when you work with your clients? Yes. I mean, there definitely obviously is a leap of faith and trust um, because, again, in that moment, it's so triggering and so overwhelming to parents that the only way to um, manage our own emotions and not be reactive and go to the rescue is sort of saying this mantra to ourselves that we're amazing parents, we're providing all sorts of wonderful love and comfort and positive experiences, and also being a good parent is setting clear limits that help our children be safe and to thrive. And, um, And then once you can start applying that, out of situations that um, you're confronted with your kids, the more effective you are, and also the more calm um, and cooperative children are because they're just testing, right? They're sort of using all of their strategies to see what is going to get a parent to change their mind. When the strategies no longer work is when there's change, right? So once the child sees that if he keeps coming out of his room, then the gate is going to go up he learn and he doesn't want the gate up because many kids just don't like gates then he learns oh i get it if i don't want the gate up then i need to stay in my room there's an absolutely nothing harmful about creating a boundary for a child to prevent them from that in and out that goes on in so many homes that just revs the system up. It feeds the frenzy. Parents are getting increasingly upset and angry. And because their child is making them feel completely out of control, it's a terrible feeling to parents to feel like I've got this little three or four year old and he's literally driving the car. I can't make him do what I want him to do. And that's true. You can't make him lie down in his bed and go to sleep. But what you can do is erect that barrier and say, It's your job to get yourself to sleep. You've got two great choices. If you come out, Mr. Gate goes up to help you stay in your room. That's a very positive parenting strategy. And then you have to remind yourself that there is going to be a lot of protest, especially the first time you do, because they're not expecting it. It's not what they have been used to. And they usually, um, you know, up the ante even more to see if this is really going to hold this new system. But once they see that you're not budging, that's where the adaptation happens. I mean, that's the same, for example, I was on a home visit the other night and the kid was, you know, screaming for some, you know, kind of dessert. And, you know, the the parents stayed firm and said, I know you want a cookie. I totally get that, but there's no more sweets today. Your two great choices are apple slices or a cheese stick. And the child then, you know, through a knockdown drag out tantrum, I'm going to starve. I'm never going to eat again. <laughs> Nothing wrong with any of that. That's just a clever child. Yep. All sorts of strategies to get his way. But when the parents stayed positive and loving, but firm he eventually, when he realized that no matter what he did, he was not going to get those cookies, he eventually chose the alternative. 
And that, that sort of, that process you could substitute for so many things. Um, it's really parents getting comfortable with the fact that protesting and tantrums are just a young child's way of saying, I don't like your rule. And there's nothing wrong with not liking the rule. Just because a child doesn't like a rule doesn't mean it's not good for him. So that's another one of sort of these guide, you know, these mantras that I have, these guiding principles that I share with families and write a lot about because I find that once you that it's your parents are much better able to actually follow through while staying calm and loving because they're no longer angry at their kids for not behaving they understand that the child's just doing what young children were doing it's their job to be comfortable setting the clear limit lovingly but clearly yeah, that's that's wonderful. I'm smiling half the way through that because you know all your examples just instantly as a, as a parent brings you to something you could relate to, and what was in that is something that I've heard you say a few times with this. You you say the words, and 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 this has been great to hear that the child is doing something nothing wrong. So there's there's nothing that the child is doing wrong. It, it kind of like makes you step back and be like, yeah, wait a minute, like like they're not doing this intentionally or consciously even though it may feel that way to defy you or to you know they're they're just doing it's not a personal thing they're just clever and they're trying to see where the boundaries are and a whole host of other reasons which i think is fascinating by the way yeah i i think that yes uh, there uh, what i would say is there are really three big um variables, I would say, that influence a child's behavior and why they do what they do. So one is just development, which is what we've been talking about, like three, four, five-year-olds, two-year-olds. They're all desperate for a sense of power over their world. And it's their job to try how to get their way in the world. And it's our job as parents to show them what strategies are going to be effective and what strategies aren't going to be effective. So that need or desire to get what they want is totally developmentally appropriate. They're not doing anything um, wrong or worrisome. I think that in some families that I work with, it's the parents who've had an especially hard time setting limits. It's gotten to an extreme. Um, where the child's behavior is very out of control because the limits haven't been there for them and their efforts to derail their parents have been so successful that that has become the prevailing dynamic. Um, and, and it takes some work to turn that around, right? So I recently saw a family where the child literally like, you know, just went into the stratosphere over every daily task because at every juncture she was able to, you know, um, get her parents to give her more books, get her parents to let her stay up an extra hour, get her dad to sleep in the bed with her, um, you know, and stay all night. All those things that all kids want, but aren't necessarily good for them. So that is one, you know, one variable is that it's expected, but it can look very concerning if it's gotten to a point where um, it, it, you know, the child is really completely running the show. The other important temperament. So, you know, that's sort of the child's in what we all have temperament. It's, it's sort of the way we're wired and how we experience the world that affects how we behave, right? So for example, I'm somebody who gets overwhelmed very easily by a lot of stimulation. So 
I hate malls. I don't like huge festivals. Um, I feel very uncomfortable in those situations where there are other people who thrive in those situations and the more stimulation, the better. Some people are wired to be like very chill. They have a big, thick filter. Nothing really gets to them. And so they sort of walk through life um, not, you know, without any really big reactions and sort of coasting. And those are the kids who I think of as like I call them kids. They're like the dandelions who thrive anywhere and who make their parents look so good because, you know, it's time to leave the playground. No problem. They jump off the swing. They come, they go running time to go to bed. They jump into bed. You know, they're just, they're, they're, they're not super intense kids who are big reactors. And then you've got a whole group of kids who are wired in a way where everything is a big deal to them. They process everything. They get hyper-focused on everything and everything becomes a big deal to them. So even minor issues can become huge for them. You turn on the bath water when they wanted to turn on the bath water and they start yelling that you have to drain the entire tub and they have to turn the water on to refill it, right? So it, those are much more likely to have more what parents experience as challenging behaviors because they get very inflexible, they get very demanding, and it's even harder to set limits with those kids while they actually need them the most in a lot of ways because they get so overwhelmed so easily by their big emotional reactions that they need more boundaries and more support, but their reactions are so intense sometimes that parents just give in you just to take everybody out of their misery. So you see like temperament is a really big piece of this puzzle and parents out there who are listening, who have a big reactor know exactly what this feels like. That's, so, so I guess what I'm saying is that yes, like all these behaviors are quote unquote normal, but the way they feel in reality can feel abnormal because of how, of the intensity and the frequency of these challenging behaviors. And, and because I mentioned there was a third, I just don't want to leave that out. The third big bucket, so we've got development, what to expect developmentally. We know three, four, five-year-olds are all about control. Um, we um, know that temperament is a big factor in how children respond, and also context is important. So what what's going on in the child's world. Um, so has there been a big change? Has there been a big loss? Has grandma come to live with you? Has the dog died? Are you moving to a new house? Is someone in the family sick? Like all of those contextual factors um, have a big impact to different degrees um, on children and can make them less flexible, less cooperative, um, you know, more clingy, more um, aggressive. It can change their behavior in many different ways um, due to ex stressors they're experiencing in their environment. So I strongly encourage parents when they're going through a time of challenging behaviors to really tune into those three variables to figure out what is driving this behavior because once you identify what the root cause is, you can respond in more effective ways. So if you're happy and you realize that this is a factor that your child is anticipating this big change that they have no way of really understanding, but they know something big is on the horizon, then you know that you're going to need to help them understand that change and be very compassionate about it while also maintaining the limits. 
That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, that, that really outlined clearly different different causes for behavior. And then, like you said, how to approach uh, or treat or, or provide what they need based on their temperament, their development, what's going on in their world. I'd love that. Thank you for that. You know, I, there's there's a, a myth that might be going on in my mind right now. I'm just curious to to hear your thoughts on this. Are there some kids with either certain in certain developmental stages or with certain temperaments that actually like, not need, but like boundaries or limits? Well, I would say, I mean, what the research, the you know, developmental research shows is that all kids want boundaries. Um, whether they tell you that or not is another story. Like we, you know, one um, sort of symbolic image that often gets used in our field is, you know, picturing that you're going over, like in our case, you know, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge or, or some bridge near where you live. And imagine for a minute that there are no guardrails and it's terrifying, right? You can immediately like the your, you know your your cortisol in your brain you know skyrocketing because it feels so unsafe and scary right that any moment you can go off the rails literally those boundaries help you feel safe and that is what boundaries do for young kids they may you know fight tooth and nail to get control because that may be what feels good to them because they want the you know extra hour of book time or they want the extra hour of screen time but they want to know that their parents are in control because it, it's sort of the way I think of it. It's like being, if you were in the army, you know, and you're a private and, you know, your Lieutenant says, you know, we're going to go this way. And you're like, Oh, I'm not sure. It looks like this other way may be the right way to go. And then he starts to question and not stick with his plan. And all of a sudden you're thinking, who is this guy in the leadership? Like he doesn't really seem to know what he's doing. I don't feel very safe anymore. And that's sort of what it feels like to kids is that they want, it's loving to know that someone has got your back and is not going to let you you know, be harmful when you're hitting or spitting or biting, who is going to set limits on screen time, even though you're not going to like it. I mean, you can't ever expect a kid to say like, thank you so much for turning off the TV so I can do more edifying activities like playing pretend. You're you're never going to get that. But in your heart and mind as a parent, you want to know that is a loving thing, even if my child is having a knockdown drag out tantrum because they're so mad I turned the TV off. That's where the mindset piece is so important. You have to keep reminding yourself just because a child doesn't like a limit doesn't mean it's not good for him. So there's tons of research that shows that limits and boundaries are incredibly important for kids. Now, I think what you're asking is there are certain kids who instinctively know that um, or, or are eager to look to their parents and ask for those kinds of limits and boundaries. Um, often it's the kids who do know that they're feeling a little out of control and they want to know, um, you know, where envelope is because it makes them feel safe. Um, so I'm not sure if that's what you, if I'm clear on that, that like we know globally that limits and boundaries are absolutely essential for young kids. Um, and actually you hear a lot of older children and young adults reflecting then at that point when they're able to do that kind of reflection 
and wish that their parents had set more boundaries to keep them safe and to help them make better choices because that's why kids have parents. Otherwise, you know, it'd be Lord of the Flies and kids would just be eating junk all day and watching TV all day and going to bed at midnight. So it's it's really parents getting comfortable with the fact that that's one of your most important jobs and limits are loving even your child's behavior is eliciting you feelings that make it very hard to make him quote unquote unhappy. Yeah, I I love that. And and what was wrapped in that was based off the child's development, the child's temperament, everything you said before, you know, the child's not going to know and they're not capable of really knowing what's best for them. A limit can be done. And if it, hopefully this is with the emotional maturity of the parent, hopefully can be done in a loving, neutral, non-reactive way with what you've said and with the assurance that this is in the best interest of the child, no matter how difficult it might be to sit with their reactions. Exactly. And I I think that that's where, um, you know, boundaries play a major role because, you know, because I do so many home visits and I really get to see parents in the trenches really struggling with some of, you know, these very challenging moments with their kids. And what I you know, one really important factor and insight is that if parents don't have a tool for controlling the situation, not controlling the child, but controlling the situation, that's when things really fall apart, right? So like going back to the bedtime thing, when you're watching families when this is happening all over America in thousands of homes with the kid, you know, I want more water, I want more food to go into your bedroom, like, you know, that sort of constant back and forth and, um, you know, finding strategies to get the parents back involved with them at bedtime. What I find is that if parents don't have a tool for keeping that in check, then that's really fuels the frenzy and just leads to something that's very detrimental to both parent and child. That's when the parent ends up, you know, grabbing the child's wrist and, you know, dragging them back into the room. And then the kid's screaming, you know, you're hurting me, you're hurting me. And then the parent feels terrible. Oh my God, I'm hurting my child. And the next thing you know, the child's back in the parent's bed for the night, right? Like that's a very (laughs) typical scenario, how things unfold. And it's all because all of these emotions are getting triggered. But if instead you're coming of, I'm an amazing parent. I take great care of this child. We have wonderful, loving moments. I'm going to do this awesome bedtime routine. We're going to cuddle. We're going to read. We're going to tell stories. And then when it's time to go to sleep, it's time to go to sleep. And it's my job to help my child calm down and stay calm um, and learn to sleep in his room safely on his own. And so if he comes out, I am going to put up a barrier and then say a last good night and then he will he in you know with that boundary he will learn to cope right and the the key is that is a tool that the parent actually controls so i can't say enough about the importance of having limits that you actually can implement right so like 
telling a, a, a child to like keep cleaning up their toys is not a good limit because ultimately you are waiting for them to choose to cooperate, which means they are holding all the cards, they are driving the car. Anytime you are in a position as a parent of waiting for your child to agree to the plan or to cooperate, they're in charge. And that is what is maddening to parents because it makes them feel out of control. How do I make this child do this? So now in comes second mindset, which is I have no control over my child. I cannot literally physically make him pick up these toys. So what is a strategy that I can implement that can control the situation? So in this shift, you would say, okay, Jason, here's the deal. We've had this great time playing. Now it's time to clean up. You've got two great choices. You can clean up all the toys, in which case you have all the toys to play with tomorrow. If you choose not to clean up the toys, no problem. Whichever toys you don't put away will go high up on this next day shelf and you can have them on Friday. You decide and you're done. So you see the point I'm making, well, I'm making several points because you know there's so much wrapped up in all of these scenarios, but one is that you're coming at these scenarios not with the mindset that my parent, my child is purposely trying to misbehave and drive me crazy. Now, the child may have learned strategies that they use because they're effective, but no one wants to misbehave on purpose, okay? That's one thing. Second thing you say to yourself, I'm a teacher. I need to teach him how to follow the rules and, and boundaries. And I need to be able to control that um, so that I can stay in charge. So once you have all those things in place, you can remain loving. You're not, there's nothing to be angry about. Your kid is just doing what all kids are going to do. It's your job to have a plan you can implement calmly and lovingly. So now you're asking your child to clean up and now he starts to hedge and you have the timer on and you say, okay, no problem. Like it's your choice, which it is. And then the timer goes off and there's still 10 toys on the floor and you say, oh, no problem. I'll put those away and you can have Day. And then your child has a knockdown drag out tantrum and you say, I know, sweetie, you're really disappointed. You don't like that the toys went away. That was your choice. Tomorrow you can make a different decision and you move on. You, 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 you know, that, I mean, I know I make it sound very simplistic, but those key pieces really are what enable parents to not sort of take the bait, get reactive and decompensate along with the child, which only ends up sort of prolonging these very, um, you know, painful moments. Yeah. And, and reassuring yourself with the message that what you're doing is actually these limits, these new things that you're putting in for your place for your child is actually in their best interest and is okay and is safe and it's hard. Exactly. And that your job, really, if you think about it, you know, I now have the perspective of having kids in their late 20s, right? So I, there's so much 2020 hindsight. And one of the things that um, I have, you know, the way I've come to see our jobs as parents um, is ultimately it's to help our children make good choices because ultimately you're not there. And that, that can happen very early, right? You're not there once you leave and you go to work and they're in childcare or they're with a nanny or they're in preschool. And then, you know, obviously it evolves from there where they're out in the world more and more on their own, making their own decisions. And the whole goal is to help them make good decisions and be good problem solvers. So if you either go in and rescue them 
or you just get punitive with them, they tend not to learn how to manage their own emotions and how to solve these problems. So let's go back to the cleanup. That's a beautiful way of saying to your child, cleaning up after yourself is an important value. Um, I am going to teach you that by giving you two great choices. The, 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 the experience of the child testing the limit and not having his coveted magnetiles for a day or two is what helps them learn to make a good choice because now they're saying to themselves, wow, that didn't work out too well for me. I tested the limit. My parents really stuck with it that's not working for me now. So the next time it's time to clean up, they have a memory. They have a memory of, oh, that didn't work out for me well last time. So now I'm going to clean up. And it, you know, if you watch kids in schools, this is happening constantly. They learn so quickly what the rules are that if they don't put their coat away and they don't put their backpack and they can't come to circle, or you know, if they don't clean up their their you know their snack stuff, they can't go outside. Like it's all natural consequences, and they learn very quickly which behaviors lead to good outcomes for them. And that's how children learn to make good choices. The same thing with like this nighttime stuff. Like I've had so many kids who hate the monkey lock. They hate the idea of the door being closed. And so I say to them, no problem. Guess what? Like you don't have to have the monkey lock. If you choose to stay in your bed, which is the rule, no monkey lock, you decide. And you know, that, that is another example of how children eventually learn to make good choices. If you think about all the choices we make as adults and you sort of un, unpeel all the layers, every day, those are the choices we're making at work, in our relationships, where we're acting, we're seeing the consequences of our actions, and we're making adaptations to best meet our needs. And that's what we're doing for our kids early on by setting these clear limits and boundaries. And when parents have those tools, they have ways of providing those boundaries that they actually can implement and don't depend on the child's that's when they no longer get angry and revved up and lose it and then later feel this awful sense of guilt and contrition for having lost it. One last example, just because it's very clear in my mind, this is so typical, right? You've got a kid. I went there in the morning for a home visit. They had terrible morning struggles, you know, all the way up to getting in the car seat. So here's what we did with the car seat. We literally said to him, you know, Damon, here's the deal. It's time to get in the car seat. You've got two great choices. You can walk holding my hand or I can be a helper and put you in the car seat. And he ran away, of course, you know, trying to provoke them and the parent literally just went over and said, okay, I can be a helper and kicking and screaming, you know, he's flailing. And I just do dad to just sing a song, do anything, but react to his provocations or his upset. You don't have to be angry at him. He, we're just teaching him that we're not going to prolong and get involved in this constant fight and back and forth. He had two great choices. He chose not to come to the cart. No problem. We will take him because what was happening before is the parents were negotiating and bribing, mm -hmm. and this was taking half an hour. And by the time he got into the car seat, he had earned you know an hour more TV and M and M's when he got home which set up this very detrimental pattern for this Pam family of this child feeling like to do anything was, you know, needed a reward. What am I going to get for doing that? And in this case, so then we just strapped him in and he's still screaming 
And, you know, dad got in the car and said, oh, you know, I wonder what's happening in that story. And he put on a story tape and he just kept moving basically to show his child, I love you so much that I am not going to participate in this. I'm not going to react to it. It's time to get in the car. I'm going to be your helper. And if you don't like me carrying you to the car tomorrow, you can make a different choice. You can walk holding my hand. That's up to you. See, so you have to think about like, what do I have the power to do in this situation that I can implement that does not depend on my child's cooperation? Fantastic. Yeah, giving them choices, but also instilling in them the the really the law of cause and effect. What happens when you make a choice? What are the consequences associated with that? So they could start to learn that. I think where I want to wrap up, and this is something, I don't know if you heard me chuckling a few times as you were telling your stories. And the reason I'm laughing partly is because of this feeling that Oh man, especially with kid number one, I did all these things where I would either bribe or try to control or have these overreactions, all these things that, you know, I wish I could take back, so to speak. And a lot of us parents, you know, may have shame and guilt around things that have happened in the past. What messages would you give to us that's, that have had things happen in the past? You can't go back and undo those things. Is there any any message you would give? Yeah, I think there's two important things I would say about that. One, and it's not it's not actually the question you asked, but um, I will um, I will answer both. Which is, um, I find that one of the most effective ways of um, helping um, pre- preventing ourselves from the the inherent reactivity in parenting and caring so deeply about these kids is to try and practice when your child is is provoking you in some way or another right like demanding something that he you really don't want him to have or to lose it because you know you said it was time to go to bed or to give up the iPad it can be very helpful to practice doing something like this. So it might be, Sarah, I've asked you for the iPad and you're having a hard time cooperating with the rule. So I'm gonna take a mommy moment to think about how I'm gonna help you follow and cooperate. So mm-hmm. it's like you're just naming what's in front of you. It could be, hmm, I've asked you to go to line your bed and go to sleep, but you keep coming out. So I'm going to take a mommy or daddy moment to think about how I'm going to be a helper. It, it doesn't matter what situation it is. It's not life or death. Your kid isn't running into the middle of the street. It can be very effective for many reasons. First of all, it forces you to pause and to think and not react. Number two, it calms the situation and it also provides a very powerful role model to your child of, um, of self-awareness mm. and reflection. You know, that you're going to take a moment to think about your feelings and how you're going to handle the situation, which is exactly the kind of self-regulation and self-control we're trying to mm. teach our kids, right? So that buys you a minute to think And then you can come back and say, I know that you're really disappointed that I over and you didn't get to finish your game. I totally get that that 
that you don't like that and that you're really mad at me right now for taking away the iPad. And you know what? I totally get it. I totally understand why in the world would you like that rule? You would like to have the tablet for many more hours. I totally understand that. But the rule is that we have an hour, the hour is up. So either you give it to me, that's one choice. And if you don't, then I will take it and you just won't have iPad time tomorrow. You decide. You see, like that is something mm-hmm. a parent can control, right? They can just not give the iPad the next day as a natural consequence for not having cooperated with the rule. And it enables them to stay calm and in control. And that moment has bought them the time to really think through how they want to handle it. So that's sort of what I would think of as prevention. In the situation you just described, which is like after you've lost it and you're feeling awful about it, Um, Not that we like purposefully want to have those moments, but I find that in the repair, it can be very healing and a very powerful teachable moment for kids. So now you've lost it and you feel really badly. What I would suggest to parents is I'm all, I think it's great to go back and own your mistakes because again, you are their most powerful role model. And that's something you want them to do too. You want them to ultimately learn to reflect on their actions, take responsibility for them. The correction, that's like in a nutshell, the definition of mental health, right? Like we all screw up, we all lose it. The question is, are we going to learn from it? And are we going to make amends? So in this case, I would go to a child and say, you know what? Mommy got really angry and mommy lost it. And I said some things that were very hurtful or I yelled at you. And I'm really, really sorry about that. I'm working really hard to help you manage your emotions. And there I go. And even mommies or daddies lose it too. And I'm really, really sorry. But part two is here's how we're going to handle the situation differently. You know, when like I've thought about it and it does make me angry when you prolong, you know, for an hour and we're all late for work. So I've given it a lot of thought and here's our new plan. Now we're going to do is I'm going to put on time timer. He's going to let you know how much time you have for breakfast. I'm going to offer you all these amazing foods and it's your job to decide what your belly needs. When time timer goes off, if you've chosen not to eat, then we will wrap it up in a container and it can go to school with you in case you get hungry. You see, so like I'm sort of now in closing, sort of playing out the whole thing from soup to nuts. It's not being reactive, giving yourself a minute to think about what's the situation in front of me and what is the choice I'm going to give my child that I can actually implement, right? You're not saying eat your food, eat your food because you cannot make your child eat your food. What you can do is say breakfast is over after you've given them ample time to eat and wrapped up the food they didn't eat and let them take it with them in the car in case they get hungry. That's another really good example of learning from their actions. If they choose to play instead of eat, then their belly may be hungry and until they get their next meal. And that's why that's when children the next morning decide, hmm, that didn't work so well for me. I wasn't able to extend, you know, breakfast for another hour. They really ended breakfast when they said they were. And that didn't work for me. So I now better start eating breakfast when it's breakfast time. Right. So that like you want to definitely 
your reactions and use it as a teachable moment, but you want to also use that as an opportunity to reflect on what caused me to lose it, what triggered me, what faulty mindsets was I functioning under, and what is my plan going to be that is loving and empathic, but setting very clear, appropriate limits for my child so that I don't have to lose control again because I have a tool in my toolkit. So fantastic. I think that is the perfect place to wrap up. If I could just remember that, practice that on the spot where there's going to be times where we're not perfect, but if we can either repair after the fact, practice our own self-awareness and use that time with that love, with that empathy uh, to clearly define a rule that's going to be in everyone's best interest, that's going to be the practice that I want to implement uh, as much as possible. So yeah. beautiful. Well, Claire, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. This was... Yes, it was it was a pleasure. And it's such a contribution, you doing this kind of podcast. Um, yeah, so, so it's an honor for me to have participated. Where could everybody find you? So um, probably the best way is via my website, which is just learnerchilddevelopment.com. Um, I do a lot of writing. So my blog section has a lot of um, content that addresses all of what we discussed, um, you know, obviously in much more detail, sort of taking some of these situations and concepts and really playing them out with lots and lots of real life examples from my work with families. So I hope that will be sort of very relatable and helpful to parents. I also, you know, I'm on Facebook, but basically I'm just posting what I have on my website. So if you just keep checking back every few weeks, I usually have a couple new blogs you know, I'm on Twitter, um, I'm on LinkedIn, but I would say probably the website is the best resource. Perfect. And we'll add that to the show notes for everybody to have as a reference. Well, Claire, thanks again. This is, I mean, this kind of went through my whole gamut of emotions here from smiling, uh, like that nervous energy smile when you're hearing old examples that are pertaining to your personal life. Uh, and then once again, just hearing gem after gem come in, uh, your knowledge is incredible. And just appreciate you coming on and sharing that with everybody. Yes, of course. It's my pleasure. All right, Claire, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks okay, again. take care. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. If something resonated with you and you'd like to share it, please email me at adam at escocoaching.com or send me a message on social media.